This morning we are turning to Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12, and we're going to be reading verses 18 through 24. Hebrews 12, verses 18 through 24. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given, if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous, made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Throughout the course of these studies in the epistle to the Hebrews, You have heard me mention time and again the backdrop against which the epistle was written. The author, we have said, was addressing some Jewish Christians who, having come to faith in Christ as Savior, were being persecuted. Faced with ostracism and other forms of opposition, it seemed that some of them were buckling under pressure to cast away their faith in Christ and return to Judaism with its rituals and sacrifices under the Mosaic law. And through a series of dreadful warnings, as well as pastoral exhortations, the writer throughout the epistle urges them not to do so. To do so, he argues, is to neglect such a great salvation for which neglect there's no escaping the consequences, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 3. To take their leave of Christ and return to the old Mosaic covenant is to sin willfully after receiving knowledge of the truth and as such will only issue in a fearful expectation of judgment, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 27. To turn back from Christ, looking back to Judaism, according to the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 39, is to shrink back unto destruction. And the last warning we saw in the book of Hebrews was issued In chapter 12, verses 16 and 17, where the writer called attention to Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. 
For the writer Esau, we said, is emblematic of an apostate. Esau represents those who, for the sake of personal gratification, will barter away that which is holy, that which is spiritual. By turning away from Christ and the blessings of the gospel, and by returning to the Mosaic law, so as to escape persecution, one, the writer of Hebrews is suggesting, is like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. And if you are familiar with the story, you'll remember how that it was out of sheer personal convenience that Esau did such a horrible thing, selling, bartering that which was sacred. The writer is saying, look, to defect from Christ because of persecution and to go back to the rituals of Judaism and the sacrificial system of the Mosaic law is to be just like Esau. Now, among the many encouragements they're given to continue with Christ, these professing believers are told that they should not throw away their confidence, which has a great reward, that they have need of patience, that after they have done the will of God, they might receive what is promised, Hebrews chapter 10, 35, and 36. So it's not just warnings, it's not just threats we find issued to these Christians, but we find encouragement. These Christians are encouraged to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of their faith, who endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God, and they are to consider him who endured such hostility against himself so that they might not grow weary or faint-hearted. Now what we have here in chapter 12, 18 through 29, we are only going to cover verses 18 through 24, are some final words of encouragement in which the author highlights, as he had done before, the superiority of the new covenant over the old Mosaic covenant. We see that in verses 18 through 24. As well, we have his final words of caution as regards refusing to pay attention to the word of God, verses 25 through 29. And so this final section, this section functions, we would say, as a grand finale to the main thrust of the epistle, as we have learned from previous studies, and that thrust is to spur, to motivate these Christians to hold fast, to hold firm to their original confidence and not turn away from Christ for whatever reason. In our study this morning, we see in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 24, the writer presenting by way of rich theology about the person and work of Christ and the glories of heaven some compelling persuasive arguments as to why the new covenant, that new and living way of redemption through Christ, is way superior to the old Mosaic covenant under the law. In these verses, he demonstrates the wide gaping contrast between what will be seen 
as the dreadful terror of the old covenant and the surpassing joy and freedom of the new covenant. And the thing we need to bear in mind as we go through this passage is that all that the writer conveys to his readers is very much applicable to you and me today. Because if we're not very careful, in fact, in the church today are those who, even while professing faith in Christ, are tempted to do the very thing that these Christians were doing. And there are different ways in which we can turn from Christ. We can turn from Christ by looking again to good works, looking again to our efforts, looking again to our religiosity, looking again to our church attendance, to our commitment in order to secure for ourselves salvation, which of course is an impossibility. We can turn away from Christ as well by compromising out of fear of persecution, selling, as it were, our Lord Jesus out of political correctness. And a great deal of that happens in our time, in our culture. So we want to consider, first of all, the arguments that he lays out to these Christians concerning the dreadful terror of the old covenant. Remember now, he's saying to them, don't go back. And essentially what he's saying to them in verses 18 through 24, you don't want to leave Christ and go back to Moses. You do not want to go back to the old covenant. You want to stick to Christ. Here's what he says, verses 18 through 21, the dreadful terror of the old covenant. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. The descriptive images and quotations in these verses are clearly drawn from Exodus 19, 10 through 25, chapter 20, 18 through 21, Deuteronomy 4, 11 through 12, 5, verse 4 and 5, as well as 23 to 27. And what the author does here, you notice he says, you have not come to what may be touched. The King James Version says to the mountain, to a mountain that can be touched. And the ESV is correct here because in the original, there is no word for mount. It is just as we have here, for you have not come to what may be touched. And that is a pregnant, powerful statement without referencing the word mount. Because here's the point, his readers, being Jewish, knew exactly what he was talking about. They knew exactly the significance of Mount Sinai. These passages recount that solemn moment in Israel's history when in giving his law to the nation, the holy God of heaven descended on Mount Sinai in awesome glory, majesty, and power. This was an occasion of great dread 
and terror and trepidation for the people of Israel. In fact, in Exodus 19 and verse 10, we are told how that in view of the awesomeness of God's holy presence, notice the people had to wash their clothes, wash their garments in preparation for God's glorious appearance. Limits were set in terms of how near the people could get to the mountain. They had to keep a distance. On pain of death, they weren't allowed to ascend the mountain or even to touch the edge of the mountain. They had to stay far. Why? Because that mountain was a danger zone. Why? Because of the holy, awesome presence of God that descended on that mountain. And then on that momentous day of God's appearance, On Sinai, we are told how that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud blast, trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Verse 18 of Exodus 19 says this, Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly, and as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. It was an awful, awful scene, dreadful scene. And so dreadful was the occasion that at this point, God had to tell Moses again, By way of making assurance to the shore, Moses go down and make sure the people do not come near, lest I burst out against them. Lest they end up getting killed. Moses was also to see to it that even the priest, as even they were supposed to be holy men, even the priest who drew near to the Lord had to consecrate themselves lest the Lord break out against them, even the priests. Now it was one thing when the Lord appeared that itself was frightening. But what occurred when God actually began to make his voice heard in the giving of the law? The dreadful impact of it on the people is recorded in Exodus chapter 20, verses 18 and 19. We read, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes and the lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood afar off and they said, Moses, you speak to us. You, we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Listen, when God spoke, it was what? Terrifying. It was a dreadful sound to hear the voice of the living God. The people begged Moses and said, Oh Moses, 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 you let God talk to you. We will hear what you have to, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. What the Israelites heard of the voice of God, what they saw of the glory of God, that they terrified them 
they could not tolerate the slightest communication from God. So but so they begged Moses to be the mediating agent through whom God would speak to them. My friends, let me say this. On this side eternity, you don't want to hear the voice of God. There are people who take the light in talking about they've heard God speak. You don't want to hear God speak. The way God speaks to us today is through his word. You are hearing his word this morning. You are hearing his word, not live and direct. You are hearing his word mediated through the pages of Holy Scripture. And that's a privilege. That's a privilege. And to highlight the solemnity and apprehension that marked the occasion of God's presence on Mount Sinai, notice what the writer says at the end of verse 31. He notes in verse 21, Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. The interesting thing to note here is that there's no specific text in Scripture in which Moses use those words, said those words. And at least at the, during the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, and here's a case we would say of the writer penning these words under divine inspiration. It's very important we understand that we see that because there are critics who will look and they will say, well, nowhere did Moses say that, nowhere does the account of Mount Sinai, is it recorded that Moses said, I fear and I quake, I tremble? And what we must understand, we have an appreciation of biblical inerrancy, biblical inspiration. The fact is that the writers of the New Testament, they could fill in details. Why? Because the Spirit of God gave them insight and gave them direction as to what was really going on. This is God's word. The writer of Hebrews says that's what Moses said. Here's the point. That's what Moses said. And surely, if the people of Israel, consider this, if the people of Israel, who had to keep their distance, was so fearful, was so filled with dread, then imagine Moses, who went near up into the mountain and was, as it were, face to face with God. Imagine how he must have been filled with great terror, with great trepidation, with great dread. Moses said, listen, I fear I tremble with fear. So here in verses 18 through 21 of our text, the writer of Hebrews, in alluding to Mount Sinai, notice what he's doing. In alluding to this event on Mount Sinai, he implicitly, what is he doing as he, as he narrates this event, as he recounts this event? He is implicitly characterizing Mount Sinai as the mountain of God's holy, terrifying presence. He's identifying this mountain as a mountain of fear and apprehension. Fear and apprehension. He's identifying this mountain as the mountain of God's unapproachable presence. 
He's identifying this mountain as a mountain of strict, inflexible, divine commands. He's identifying this mountain, the mountain, as the mountain that threatens death even to an animal for coming near the awesome, glorious presence of God. And through these fearsome imageries, beloved, the, the author is impressing, is impressing on his readers the fact that they are not under that kind of covenant. You see what he's doing? He's saying to them, as it were, listen, you want to leave Christ? You want to leave what you have in Christ, all the freedom, all the glory? You have in him a perfect savior? You have in him a perfect high priest? You have in him a greater than the temple. He is the fulfillment of the law. He is a perfect sacrifice. He secured perfect redemption. Do you want to go back to Mount Sinai? He's saying to them, beloved, they are not under the old covenant. They are no longer under the jurisdiction of Mount Sinai with its rigid structures and legislations with its dreadful, dread-filled apprehension as regards approaching the holy, awesome presence of God. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, he says to them. He's saying to these professing Jewish Christians, think of what you have in Christ under the old, under the new covenant. Think of the freedom, the confidence of approach you have in coming before God, all because you have in Christ a perfect mediator, a perfect high priest, one who has taken care full, fully of all your sins before God. He's saying, in Christ, you need not approach God with servile, cowardly dread, as did ancient Israel. He's saying to them, unlike Israel at Sinai, you in Christ have no restriction nor limitation placed on you with respect to coming to God. That's what he's saying. And with this, the writer is saying to his readers, if ever you cast away your faith in Christ, then if ever you go back to Judaism, if ever you go back to the law, if ever you go back to Moses, if ever you go back, then know what it is you're returning to. You're returning to Mount Sinai. You are returning, my friends, to the naked, awesome dreadful holiness of God which will devour you, which will kill you. We need to say that, beloved, to persons who are insistent on returning to their good works. Because here's the truth, my friend, there's only one way in which we are saved, only one way in which we are secured, and it is through the perfect mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we can come boldly, we can come confidently to the throne of grace, which is no longer a throne of terror and of threat and of condemnation. It is a throne of grace.
He's saying to his readers, if ever you go back to the Mosaic Covenant with its focus on law-keeping, in effect, you're only going back to that which is terrifying, to that which will surely lead to death and damnation. Sinai, I cannot help you. Moses cannot help you. Law-keeping cannot help you. Mass cannot help you. Priest father cannot help you. What you need is the perfect high priest. What you need is a savior, an all-sufficient savior, who has completed and satisfied in full the holy justice and wrath of God against sin. And that person is the man Christ Jesus, whom God has appointed as his high priest. To turn away from Christ, to give up your confidence in him, he's saying to them, is to go back to Sinai, is to again be exposed to the intolerable terror and dread of facing the holy and righteous God of heaven. Facing him without the protective merit and mediation of his son, of his appointed mediator and high priest. So we come now to verses 23 to 24 where the author shifts his argument. And here the writer of Hebrews, notice what he does. In verses 23 and 24, he enumerates and highlights the surpassing joy and freedom of the new covenant. That's what we have in verses 23 to 24, the surpassing joy and freedom of the new covenant. Look at how he begins verse 22. He says, but. And the conjunction but there is emphatic. In the Greek grammar, it is known as the strong adversative. Now watch this. There are two words in the Greek for but. There is de, which is the most commonly commonly used word, de. And there's the word Allah. Now, Allah is what is called the strong adversative, and it is used for the sake of emphasis. It's like my saying, you know, I love coffee. But, that's Allah. Here's what the writer is saying. He says, you haven't haven't come to what might be touched. With all the blazing fire, with all the gloom, with all the fear, with all the trepidation. But, that's what he's saying here. But, you have come to Mount Zion. And verse 22 begins to highlight then a series of blessings afforded by the new covenant. Blessings which render the new covenant superior, way superior to the old covenant to begin with. In contrast to Mount Sinai and its associated, associated terrors is Mount Zion with all its favorable and pleasant associations. One only has to read the Old Testament to discover all the wonderful things that are said of Zion. As we read the Old Testament, we learn that Mount Zion, for example, was the place where the ark the the visible representation of God's glorious presence, his gracious presence with his people, resided. Israel really, notice, was never afraid 
of that representation of God's presence. They revered it, but they were never afraid. In fact, when they were going out to war, they would say, what, fetch the ark, because it's God with us. And where was the ark located? The ark was located in Zion. The ark was located in Zion. Second Samuel 6, 1 through 19, 1 Kings 8, 1 Kings 8 and verse 1. According to Psalm 78, verse 68, Zion was declaredly God's choice mountain. Here's what God said concerning Zion. Here's what the psalmist says concerning Zion. He says, he, that is he, God, chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. According to Psalm 84, verse 7, Zion was the rallying point of the people of Israel, the place where they appeared before God. Zion was special. Why? Because it was a meeting place where the people, all the tribes went up to rally before the Lord. In Psalm 50, verse 2, Zion is characterized as the perfection of beauty, the place from which God shines forth. Indeed, Zion First Peter chapter 2, verse 6 is portrayed as the very center and source of salvation because here's what Peter says, quoting Isaiah, for it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Zion then, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, was no doubt that city to which Abram was looking forward. The city, Hebrews chapter 11 verse 10, whose foundation, whose designer and builder was God. Remember Abram? He dwelt in tents. And the writer says, look, the reason he dwelt in tents moving about because he was looking for the city. The city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He's talking about no doubt, Zion in the context of Hebrews. In fact, in Galatians 4 and verse 26, Revelation 3 verse 12, as well as Revelation 14, 1 to 3, you'll see that the apostles Paul and John, what did they do? They similarly cast Jerusalem and Zion in spiritual heavenly terms. Zion was a place where God chose to set his name. It was a place of God's presence. It was a place of God's favor. Psalm 76, verse 2, Isaiah 18, and verse 7. So under the new covenant, Zion is a figure of what? Heaven. Zion is a figure of heaven, the place where God resides with his redeemed people. Read Revelation chapter 14, 1 to 3. Moses saw the one 44,000 representative of the church. Where were they? They were on Mount Zion. They were singing. They were following the Lamb. And notice in verse 3, in the same breath, John equates, he links Zion with the throne of God. Zion is the place of God's residence, not physical Zion, but Zion in heaven. The writer is saying. Now back to verse 22 of our text. The author says then to his readers, but, but, you haven't come to a mount that can be taught, but you have come to Mount Zion. Mount Zion is representative of the new covenant. And the verb come is in the perfect tense, which suggests that at their coming to Mount Zion, their coming to Mount Zion is an accomplished fact. It's a done deal. 
The idea here is that these believers, it's not that these believers shall come to Zion, but that they have already come to Mount Zion. In the truest sense of the term, beloved, we could say this, that what we have here could very well be termed realized eschatology. The idea that in spirit we are already in heaven. We are already in Zion. Because here's the truth from God's perspective. That's where we are right now. You say, what in the world are you talking about? Here's the point, beloved. The fact is, even though on this side eternity we are beset with temptations, we are beset with trials, even though on this side eternity... We are constantly exposed to opposition, to persecution, yet in reality, our real existence, according to the word of God, is where? Heaven. You say, how, where the word of God teaches that? Listen, Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 5, and 6, that having made us alive together in Christ, notice what God did. He raised us up with him. God raised us up with Christ. That is in our salvation. He raised us up with Christ. And what did he do? He made us sit with him in the heavenly places in Christ. From God's vantage point, we have in principle, beloved, come to that heavenly city of which we are heavenly citizens. That is why Paul can say in Philippians chapter 3 at verse 20, for our citizenship is in where? In heaven. What a rich and glorious truth that while the full and ultimate realization of our entry into the heavenly city awaits the coming of our Lord Jesus, the fact is, in Christ, we are, in principle, we are, in spirit, already seated there, such that we are already citizens. The Bible teaches that our life is hidden with Christ in God. Colossians chapter 3 verse 3. And in the same breath, Colossians chapter 3 verse 1 tells us exactly where Christ is. Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now, follow the logic. Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. Where are we then in spirit? Where are we then in principle? We are in heaven. In principle. Already, but not yet, as the theologians love to put it. It is in this sense, then, that as believers in Christ, we have come to Mount Zion. Now, we must not treat these truths as some kind of abstract ideas unrelated to life. The fact is, from God's perspective, that's why we need to set our minds on things above. That's why we need to think heavenly. The word of God teaches that while we are here on earth, while we walk, while we go about our day-to-day affairs, we are not citizens of this earth, but we are citizens of heaven. Now, in describing this Mount Zion to which his readers have come as believers in Christ, and here are the joys, the wonders of the new covenant, the writer of Hebrews, notice how does he characterize this heavenly state to which we have come? He says, we have come to the city of the living God, the heavenly 
Jerusalem. But you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Why is this city called the city of the living God? Why is it so called? Because he, the living God, is its designer and builder. Hebrews 11.10 Zion, the heavenly city, is the city of the living God because that's where his throne is. Revelation chapter 14 verse 3, as we said earlier. Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, is the city of the living God in as much as he's the one who sets the criteria for entry into that city. God sets the agenda, he sets the criteria for entry into heaven. Because in Revelation 21 verse 27, here's what the word of God warns. The word of God says this, Nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. You know, we talk about becoming a citizen. We, we went through the process of becoming a citizen of this country, for which we are very, very thankful, and we feel very privileged. But let me tell you, the process we had to go through, it was a process. There were laws, rules we had to follow. There are papers we had to have in place. There are communications we had to make with our, the, our country of origin to make sure that things synced. And here's the point. God is the owner of this city. God sets the tone. He sets the agenda for entry into this city. And he, deter- he is determined that nothing unclean will enter this city, Revelation 22, 14, 15 says this, that it is those who wash their robes who have the right to enter the city. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers, the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Why? Because God is holy. God is holy. His presence is a holy presence. And where God resides, being the holy and righteous God he is, he cannot tolerate not even the slightest sin. As we said last week, and I say it again, if ever you and I have to go, if ever you and I have to go to heaven, we have to go there perfect. We have to go there sinless. You say, how so? Thank God in Jesus Christ, we have been cleansed. We have been washed. We have been perfected. We can stand before God, the holy God, blameless and in love, to use the language of the Apostle Paul. Furthermore, Mount Zion, the heavenly city, is aptly referred to as the city of the living God. Why? Because unlike all earthly cities, which will eventually crumble, which will eventually come to an end. This city constitutes a kingdom that is unshakable. Look at verse 29. Verse 28, sorry. It is a city of the living God because a kingdom that cannot be shaken, it cannot be moved. It abides forever. Earthly kingdoms will wane All the glories of this kingdom, all the major cities of this world will pass away, notwithstanding its glamour, its glitter, its attractions. Here's the point. The city of God will endure for all eternity. 
Indeed, we read in Hebrews 13, verse 14, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come. That's what we have under the new covenant. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, listen, when you leave Moses, when you leave Sinai, when you leave law-keeping, when you leave rituals, you are coming to the heavenly city. You are coming right into the very presence of the holy God that ancient Israel feared and stood in trepidation of him. Oh, my friends, the beauty is the glory is the joys of the new covenant in Christ. What freedom, what joy, what liberty. What freedom of access. In Christ, as the songwriter says, the songwriter says, no condemnation now I dread. The idea is Christ has set us free and we are freed to stand before a holy God, fully absolved, basking in a complete, perfect, Redemption. Good works cannot save. Law keeping cannot save. Being goody goody cannot save. Being decent and moral and upright, that's good, but it can't get you into heaven. Truth is, those things, hear me now, you know this, it bears repeating. The truth is, the goody goody moral life, the religious life, the religiosity will do more to condemn a soul to hell than anything else. Why? Because those things bypass the perfect salvation, the perfect Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is to him that we come. It is to him we must come, and it is in him we must abide. If ever we are to see the kingdom, of God.